Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. This podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. And this new series of uh, programs focuses on what we're calling hard verses uh, in Scripture. And I invite my guests, who are all members of the Coming Home Network, to, to join us, uh, pick a verse, and then they'll talk about how they considered it hard at one point, given their previous tradition and what were issues with this particular text, and then how, by the mercy of God, they came in their journey of Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ, and brought them to a deeper understanding of that verse. And so this week, a good friend, uh, I invite to the program, Steve Ray, author, speaker, apologist, world traveler. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Always good to be with you. <laughs> it's great to have you drive down from that state up north yep. to the state down south, right? You guys yep. up north say it, right? Us Yankees up in the north. Yeah, uh, you Wolverines up there and us little nuts down here in Ohio. But uh, it's great to have you here, Steve. It, it always is. Thank you. In fact, I wanted to re remind the audience, uh, catholicconvert.com is your website? It's a website, yep. And there's a lot of spokes that go out from the center. There's our pilgrimage website, and I have also a store where we sell all my books and CDs and DVDs. And we have another section about our movies that we make and a lot of things. Catholic and, convert. And one of the things that I'm excited about having you join the program today when we talk about hard verses is that one thing you've dedicated your life to doing is taking people to the places where Scripture came alive, mm. which helps it come more alive it in their lives. Because often the reason certain verses are hard is because we don't realize the place. I mean, one thing that I could think of, which we're not going to cover today, was, would be the Capernaum situation where Jesus is talking about, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And right there he's in front of a rock, right? Yeah, I mean, right. the significance yep. of the location brings that story alive. Yep. Sure. It, it is. And, and Pope Paul VI said that the Holy Land is the fifth gospel, gospel number five. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read them in black and white. You go to the Holy Land, and all of a sudden it all comes pops out and Technicolor. One of the passages we'll talk about is John chapter 2, about the relationship with the mother and her son. And we don't think of things right when we're reading this, because we think in terms of American mentality and our culture. Going back in, to the original time and the people, it's very similar today in Nazareth than it, is, it was in biblical times, but very different from the way we live as Americans. So it's not only going back to the land, but going back to understand the cultural context of a passage, you it know, opens it up. It just made me think about something. We're we're today experiencing a rise of radical Islam, and we're seeing it spread before us on the media. And what we're seeing is essentially what would have happened if this media had been available in the eighth and ninth and tenth centuries. We would have been seeing the same things happening a thousand years right. ago. Right. Uh, but why was it that the kings of in of new in of um, Europe, excuse me, were so motivated to sacrifice money and lives to recapture mm -hmm. the Holy Land yep. because it was the fifth gospel. It was, and their Christians were being persecuted there, and Christians were being slaughtered. Churches are being destroyed, and the Crusades, which people think of in a negative sense today, but in a real reality, they were going there to free the Christians from Islamic oppression to regain the Holy Land so that pilgrims like me can take groups there to visit the holy sites. This is what that was all about. I mean, and you're right. It's just the same thing's it's happening exactly today. Same. If they hadn't happened, 
what's happening today would have taken over all of Europe exactly. a thousand years ago. Exactly. And in the 1500s at the Battle of Lepanto, had the Christians of Europe not gone into the Battle of the uh, Patras Bay and fought and pushed the Muslims back into North Africa, all of us would be speaking Arabic and worshiping Allah. All right. Well, I got us off on a bit of a tangent there, but I think a good it's an important one, I think. one. But the yeah. point was to demonstrate that verses can be hard unless we see the whole of the story. Mm. And we were talking about the location, but also recognizing that outside of Scripture, Scripture is a part of a bigger piece that we mm. were given by the Holy Spirit through the yep. church. Now, you, you you chose today for your hard scripture what? How can Jesus make wine for people to drink? Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. But it, it, it was a hard one, though. Let me, this is kind of a silly one, but we'll get to the real hard one in a second. But I was raised from the Baptist tradition, and um, alcohol was not allowed. It was forbidden. And I have two books on my shelf at home from back when I was a Baptist, proving that everywhere the Bible referred to wine, it was really referring to grape juice. And so Jesus did not here turn water into wine. He turned water into Welch's grape juice. Was it published by the Welch's company? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I could have been. But the, the fact is, is that that was really believed. And for communion in our churches, we had crackers and Welch's grape juice. There was no wine. And so this passage had to be somehow twisted because this, this issue of drinking wine was a problem. And Jesus wouldn't have made wine because there are so many passages said to drink, you shouldn't be drunk and all of this. So it couldn't be wine, it had well, to be grape juice. Be, uh, be not drunk with wine, but be you know intoxicated by the Holy Spirit. Is, yes. that, is that Ephesians passage? Yep. And I remember that. And I, I was a Presbyterian pastor and I had the same problem, though not quite as much. We Presbyterians you know, would, would slip a little bit of wine or something. It wasn't as big of an issue. Uh, I think I, though, avoided it. You see, because I knew that if I made it really clear from the pulpit that Jesus was real wine, half of my congregation would be mad at me. So I avoided that aspect of this. And I also avoided our Lord's comment to his mother when he uses what seems like a rude way of talking to her when he says, woman, it ain't my time. Mm -hmm. So I didn't deal with that either because I wasn't sure. Uh, you know, again, how different people would take it. For me, this was, a, I, I just dealt with the miracle. Right. And, and it and, was a real miracle, and they all saw it was a miracle, and I quickly moved on. Jesus is yeah. powerful. He can do miracles in your life. Do you need a miracle? Turn to Jesus. I mean, that's yeah. how I dealt with the passage. And you can even spiritualize it by saying that he turned something mundane into the grace of the Holy Spirit. You know, wine represents something much higher than water. So he took what was mundane in our life, and he used it to bring great full spiritual riches or something. There's other problem in that passage is that Mary seems to be ignoring her son because she says they have no wine. And he knew she was asking for a miracle because you can tell by the way he responds to her. So let's put it in this sense. Son, um, we're at a wedding here and these are my friends and there's big trouble here because they didn't prepare well. More people came than they were expecting. So I need you to take care of this problem. And um, by the way, you're 30 years old now, and it's time for me to see you do a miracle. <laughs> I've been waiting for this day. And he says, Mother, their problem is not our problem. The way he said it, three things. He says, first, woman, what does this have to do with you and I? My hour has not yet come. Those are three we have to unpack. And, yep. and it is a problem because 
it seems like he Mary is telling him to do something and he's not wanting to do it. And but first of all, he says, woman. Now, I can imagine if I said to my mother, she came and asked me, can you go get a bottle of uh, Coke for the family here? And I says, woman, she'd slap me. (laughs) This is no way to talk to your mother. So first of all, that 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 seems to be a bit of a problem. But I think that the word woman there in biblical times was a was a highly complimentary. It was a title of honor. Because it wasn't, there's nothing wrong with being a woman. It was actually a high honor to be called a woman. You look back in history, that was a term of endearment and of respect. But also, I think it's a biblical term because back all the way in Genesis, it said, The woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, had you seen those typological connections back then? No, I. I you saw, weren't quite there yet. No, I wasn't. And I. I, w- I saw them as I was going through my conversion process. I realized that the Bible was much deeper and richer than I had been told as a Baptist. I remember there was a set of commentaries on my shelf that all, we almost all used. They were by an Anglican named Barclay. I have them. And uh, yep. in fact, I literally have read them cover to cover. Uh, during my earliest days when I came to faith, my con- Jesus conversion I caught my Jesus conversion was back in the early 70s when a lot of us were having those. And it changed my life, as yours yeah, did too, same too. time period. And I read every day scripture and a part of Barclay. But Barclay had a flaw, and Barclay didn't believe in miracles. And and he had a real problem with miracles. So like, for example, the, the feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle of sharing. You know, Jesus gave the example of getting this young boy to share his food and then grace just changed everybody's attitude and they shared so much that baskets were left over. And I could almost, I don't know that he did this in this, but I could almost somebody saying, well, no, Jesus needed something to get done. And so there were these empty jars and his example of caring, everybody took the flasks out of their... (laughs) Out of their robes and filled, they shared the wine that in their half-empty, glo- uh, you know, goblets, so that everybody could have some. Yeah, yep. That's so. Uh, in other words, you deal with hard verses if they don't fit your categories. Right. You look for explanations. You want to you want to write it away. You want to say no, it wasn't real wine. It couldn't have been. It could only have been grape juice. Whatever it is. Because you don't want to deal with it. Yep, because it doesn't fit your paradigm, doesn't fit your tradition. So what happened, my friend? Well, what happens here is it seems that Mary pulls the rug out from I'll tell under. you what, before we go there, All right. I better read it for those that are okay. driving in their, in their trucks. And they yeah, can't don't grip. pull out your Bible and drive it, read it while you're driving. So let me read. I'm reading the RSV. And, uh, and, and John writes, On the third day there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, oh woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, 
the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples. Now, I could tell, Steve, as I was reading the RSV, and you were looking at the New American Standard Bible, that we were even seeing some of the hardness come out in the different way the committees yep. decided to translate yep. the Greek into English. Yeah, one, it says that once they had um, drunk, drunk freely, and some translation says once they become drunk. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure that's yeah. the case. I'll double check that, but you don't, that doesn't happen with grape juice. But you're right. And it seems that the simplicity of the words of John, they're obviously marrying Jesus' words, that the way John presents it is so simple. They have no wine. Very simple. My friend in Nazareth, when I, he's, he's our local guide that I use. He, he puts this into its cultural context, and he tells how it happens even today with a mother and her son. The weddings are even today, and I've been to weddings. I've flown over there for our friends that get married in, in Nazareth. Men and women are separate. They're not together, even for the whole week. The women stay in one part of the house or the one part of the dinners, and the men stay in the other. You can see Mary with her friend, who's they've realized they're running out of wine, getting a little desperate. She leaves the women, and she comes across to where the men are. She f makes eye contact with her son and says, come here, come here. She catches his eye and says, come here. You know, you can just see her finger. Come here. He comes out to her, and he looks at her, yes, and she says, they have no wine. Very simple. She know, He knows exactly what she's asking. But, you know, just stop there, because that is so key. All it says in here is when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Right. The it, point you're making is that being there and seeing the culture exactly. is absolutely key to understanding the scripture, which is one of the flaws of, of those who hold to a sola scriptura exactly. idea because they've extricated the, the scriptures from the situation, from the history, from the culture and the tradition. The cultural context, exactly. You have to understand the cultural context to be able to see this clearly. So it, it, another way to put it is reading the Bible, we're at a great disadvantage as being Americans because we're not reading the original languages. We're reading it from a totally different culture, removed 2,000 years, and we're not from that land. Okay, it's a great disadvantage. So she goes and she calls him out from among the men and says they have no wine, which is a disaster. The, the wine and beverage, the beverage and food guy got it wrong. Okay, now she's commanding him because this is she's commanding him to fix it my friend says that often many times that they had guests come to their house and they would run out of soft drinks and the mother would call her son and say come here we've run out of soft drinks and he knew exactly what that meant he didn't argue with her by saying they've, we've run out of soft drinks really meant we're out of soft drinks this is an embarrassing situation quickly get the money and go to the store but go out the back door because i don't want them to know that we ran out of soft drinks bring it back in here and we'll act like nothing happened quickly those simple words they've run out of wine in the culture says a whole lot more and the son does not argue with his mother it's very clear in the middle east in these eastern families that the woman has more power than the man the woman is really the heart of the family even in the in my big fat greek wedding it's the, yeah. the man is the head but the woman is the neck and tells the head which way to turn see it's this way there the woman has tremendous power my friend says that if a father dies it's sad but if a mother dies it's a disaster She's the heart of the family. She's the, really the power. Okay, Jesus looks at her and responds back, woman, which is a sign of respect. 
What does that have to do with you and I? That's, it's a Hebraism. It's a way that Hebrews, what is that? It's not our issue. It's, it's their problem. I'm just here for the wedding. And I mean, that really is a good point when you, you refer to that, that movie, you know, which I just watched last night <laughs> with my, my wife again that, on the Greek wedding. Because that uh, you could see one of the brothers of the woman who was getting married uh, panicking and saying, hey, we were out of wine. But there's no evidence here that Mary and Jesus and disciples have any direct connection to these right. people being married. Right. So Jesus rightfully says, what's it got to do with me? Right. You know, this is not my family. Yep. I mean, you could understand that. And, and the point is why John makes such a big issue of it. The first of the signs yep. is it's the time. Right. And God uses Mary to bring in the time. Mary's an intercessor. Mary is intercessing for the wedding guests. Why? Because they're her friends. She loves them. They're probably family. They're all... Cana, another thing to realize, see, I've run from Cana to Nazareth and back. Cana, if I leave Nazareth where Mary lived at the time, and I ran over the hill of Nazareth down, it takes me half an hour to get to Cana, and then a half an hour running back. Took her an hour to walk. Because you forgot your iPhone that morning? Yeah, I forgot. I get, get lost. <laughs> it's, an, it's an hour walk. So these are probably relatives and friends. Okay. Mary probably knew these people. They're good friends of hers. Only an hour walk away. She loves them. She cares about them. Now she's come to her son to intercede for them. She's, she's coming to pray. She's praying for them in a sense. If you want to view it this way, son, because pray means to ask. They have no wine. Simple statement. He says, woman, what does that have to do with us? This is, we, I, we don't live here. I'm just here as a guest with my disciples and I don't want to get involved. Why? He says it now. Because my hour has not yet come. This is key. What does he mean my hour has not yet come? When he does his first miracle, and remember, John never uses the word miracle in his gospel. There's only seven signs. What do signs do? Point to something. What is John trying to do in the gospel of John? He says it in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. That's his whole thesis. Now he's got 21 chapters to prove it. What is the thesis? That this man that looks like a curly-haired Jewish guy walking around is really God, this is a tough thing to prove. Here he begins because the first sign takes place. Not a miracle, he doesn't call it. He finds a sign. Why seven? Because seven's a perfect number. Seven, rec even the number seven signs is pointing to his divinity. That's the number of God, the perfect number. Seven days, seven sacraments, seven archangels. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. The hour for what? If Jesus is to do a miracle... His divinity is going to come out. It's going to be like coming out of his pores. It's going to, they've only seen the man. They have not known he's God. When he does this miracle, he, they're going to see his divinity. It's going to kind of ooze out of him and they're going to say, uh-oh, this is him. And everything is going to change. And actually look at what verse 11 says. This is the beginning of his signs. Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory. His divinity was manifested and his disciples believed in him. Up until this point, Mary would be in her cave because they lived in caves in, in Nazareth, not houses. And she'd watch for her son to come over the hill from work every day. And when he came over the hill, she'd run in and cook for him and get everything ready. And she lived for that boy. Even till 30 years old, she did everything, cooked for him, cleaned for him, took care of him. When she said this, they have no wine. In a way, she was saying goodbye. It was a moment of sorrow for Mary, I think, because from that moment on, he was glory was going to be seen. He is now going to go serve his heavenly father. He would no longer be living with her every day like she had. They prayed together. They read scripture together. She cooked for him. 
when she said, do whatever he tells you, that was a moment of sorrow because she gave him away because she knew that once he did what she asked and he couldn't not do what she asked because she's the mother and you do what your mother tells you in these lands, that his divinity was going to be seen and he was going to walk, leave and begin to serve his heavenly father. It's a moment of sorrow for her. But this, look what's interesting. Here's what the problem was for me is that Jesus said his hour hasn't come and Mary said, yes, it has. <laughs> Who was the one who told Jesus when his earthly ministry was to begin, contrary to his wishes? His mother. And here I am saying as an evangelical that Mary is not important in the Bible. Mary was just a conduit to bring Jesus into the world. She wasn't chosen before time. She wasn't special. Immaculate conception is all this Catholic stuff. But why is it that this woman has so much authority that she can even tell Jesus when his earthly ministry is going to begin Contrary to his own statement, my hour has not yet come. She said, yes, it has. But she didn't say it in words, did she? She said it with her eyes because she said they have no wine. He's, what does that have to do? And she turned. She didn't even talk to him. She turned to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you. And she walked out of the room knowing that he would obey her. What kind of authority is this this woman has over God himself in the flesh. This was a problem for me. How can this woman, Mary, have such authority and control? Maybe she's more important than I've been taught. I was thinking, uh, Steve, question, uh, and you did your commentary on John. And uh, I love John and, and studied it quite a bit at seminary, but uh, you know, I did, but not to the depth I'm sure you did for your book. My hour has not yet come. The, the, my hour. Does that mean the start of his ministry? Does that mean his cross? In different places, it means either one. Most of the time, his hour means the cross, the hour of his being raised up so that all men will be drawn. Here it's used differently than it's used other places. And we know that we know the context of it because he says, my hour has not yet come. She tells him to do the miracle with her eyes. And by speaking to them, to the servants, and it says what? This he did with the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, and his hour came, I'm adding that, because he was manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This was a change. This was a, a, an absolute turn in a different direction. He was only Jesus the carpenter up till now. He was only Jesus the carpenter who was also kind of a rabbi teaching, and he had disciples who came with him. But at this moment, Mary flipped the switch. Mary forced a miracle. And at that moment, his earthly ministry began. And this was the first step towards the cross. This is where the start, this is where the first step of the cross was. He did what his mother told him to do because she did tell him to do that. If you understand the context and how families are in the Middle East, even today, she commanded him to do a miracle or to fix it somehow. And he obeyed her because you don't not obey your mother there. And he did it, and his whole direction of his life began. The earthly ministry began, a change in direction. And it was at Mary's command. I wonder if this is a great example of one of the problems of, of a solo scriptura approach to scripture is that uh, all that I need to know is here. Mm -hmm. And the danger there is if the authors of the books themselves had a had an assumption uh, that uh, enabled them to hold back information that wasn't necessary because they assumed their audience already knew it. Mm -hmm. For example, liturgy. Since there's almost no reference to liturgy in the New Testament, mm -hmm. 
Does that mean they had no liturgy or because they fully had liturgy and there was no need to mention it? It's a perfect, perfect case. You know, a good example. And I'm wondering if in this case, what we have is the youngest apostle who himself never mentions his name in his gospel. Yep. Who's been called to take care of the mother of Jesus. We see that in John 19. Is it 19? Mm -hmm. Yep. John 19. We see this. And that's his primary charge. The older apostles are sent forth. He's taking care of the mother in Ephesus. Mm -hmm. If that is the background to understanding the early church's reverence for the mother of Jesus, that is the necessary background to understand this passage. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if you have no affection for Our Lady, and basically as a Protestant, I would kind of avoid her at every turn, that that takes away from the underlying meaning of this passage from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, John wrote this 70 years after the fact. He wrote this around 97 AD because we learned from the very first Christians that knew him that he wrote this at the end of his life when Emperor Trajan, 97 AD, became the emperor. So this was written after 70 years about meditating on the life of Christ and the life of Mary. And if you think about this also, he has lived with Mary for how many decades? He's been living with her. He's telling her story about what happened after having lived with her for decades and after 70 years of the Holy Spirit keeping the promise that he's going to teach you all those things. And John, who's malleable to the Holy Spirit after these years, is writing the story and telling you, and he's telling you who told Jesus when his ministry began. John bookends things in his gospel. This is really interesting. Everything is bookended, the important things. In the very beginning is Peter says in, first, in uh, chapter 1, verse 52, when Jesus meets Simon, he says, you will be called Cephas, which means rock. We're told that in the first meeting with Jesus and at the end of the gospel, feed my sheep and tend my lambs. Peter bookends the gospel of John. Water bookends. That we can talk about that later if we want to. But also Mary bookends. Somebody says Mary's not so important because she's only mentioned twice by name, you know, woman. or She's only mentioned twice in John's gospel. Yes, but where is she placed? She is used to bookend his earthly ministry. She is there at the very moment telling him when his earthly ministry is going to begin when he's 30 years old. And she's mentioned again where? At the cross, at the very last moment of his earthly ministry. She is so important that she bookends his earthly ministry. So it's not how many times, but it's where she's placed and the importance that John places her there. And here she's placed at the very beginning, telling Jesus against his own wishes when his earthly ministry is to begin. I don't think her name Mary is mentioned in John, is it? I don't think so, no. So I find that fascinating. Uh, if, if you go to 19... It's woman. Every time... Both places, it's woman. It's woman, but also the words of Jesus are woman, but the description of John are the mother. The mother of Jesus. It doesn't say the mother of Jesus and his brothers, but only the mother of Jesus. He had brothers, it says, but in the culture, you understand, this is another reason for the culture to understand, putting the Bible in its cultural context, linguistic context and cultural context. When we go there, I tell them, our bus driver, his name is Assam. He's a Roman Catholic Palestinian bus driver. He lives with his brothers, Azmi and Afif. 
And all of their kids are grown together. The father and mother live on the first floor. Azmi, second floor. Afif, Assam. They all have different levels of the house. They all are one big family. You don't know among the cousins whose are brothers or not. You call them their brothers. The word cousin wasn't even in the word Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. So when you are saying brothers in our context, we're thinking of sons of one mother. But here you say brothers. It can be many things. It can be sons of one mother. It can be cousins who are all together kin, brethren. Even among these people in this land, you know, when we have a baby, if the mother can't produce milk, you run out and get formula and give them a bottle. You didn't have that option back then. If a mother didn't have enough milk, she would give it to another woman to breastfeed her baby. And every baby that drank from that breast was a milk brother. You could be a brother just because you called a brother because you drank from the same breast. There's a lot of ways to be considered brothers. Also, the oldest tradition is that Joseph was an older man who had children prior to marrying. He has a widower. Then the brothers would be stepbrothers from an, a previous marriage. There's a lot of ways to view this. But the fact is, is that Mary has only one son and she refers to him as son, even though it says in this passage, even with brothers, the next verse says 12, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother and his brethren. Doesn't mean that those were sons of Mary. We know that they were not. They were sons of somebody else, but brothers of well, Jesus. Once again, you're referring to another hard verse, yes. which would be another discussion, what's meant by brethren. And again, if you look at the culture, if you look at how it was understood in the explains early church, it. you see how the culture and the tradition explains it. One other thing, in this context, in John nineteen twenty, which is the at the foot of the cross, the author of the gospel says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother. So once again, the author of the gospel, John, which I believe is Apostle John, did not mention her name or his own. Right. And there in itself is a hardness. How do we explain that? Why, why does he not say, I was there? Instead, it's almost third person, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, I have an explanation. How did you explain that in your book? I, I, well, forget I, would, I would just think that John is, he's not wanting to put himself front and center. He's not wanting to make himself too important in the story. His name isn't what's important. His name is not significant. Who's important right now? Jesus and his mother. That's the story that's being told. He represents all disciples. He's yeah. not, he's not... The fact that he's John is not important. What's important is that Jesus and, and Mary, his mother, and John represents all disciples. The way I've always explained it, which as a non-scholar, but dealing with a hard verse back all, is that as we find in other New Testaments, there's often an amanuensis. Yes. You know, Paul's writing Ephesians, but we know at the end that another guy wrote it down. Right. He can't write because his hands are in chains. Right. So here we have my explanation was John's the old the last remaining apostle revered and let's get we got to get the stories down so john in his great eloquence guided by spirit is proclaiming and someone's writing it down so when he gets to so the reverence that the community held for john and the mother of christ right come out in this in fact the amanuensis his name was procurus because we just got back from the island of patmos with a group of people and there everywhere are icons of john writing and there's always him not writing but his secretary procurus is writing early tradition said that he did have a secretary that he dictated to so you are correct well listen steve thanks you're welcome for joining us on this we'll have you back 
of course, and once again, let me mention uh, CatholicConvert.com, where you can they can find out all the other stuff you do, as well as your book on John. Yep, uh, my book on John's 450 pages, and I dive in like scuba gear into this book. It's there just marvelous. I hope you listening will uh, take advantage of that. Uh, just a reminder that we want to hear from you. You can email us at questions at deepinscripture.com or leave us a voicemail question or comment by clicking the button at deepinscripture.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. And just a reminder that Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, learn, and pray with us. So visit chnetwork.org. Again, thank you. David Anders will be our guest next week on Deep in Scripture. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week.